Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Wassalatu Wassalamu Ala Rasulillah. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, He tells us in the Quran, Who has created the seven heavens, one above another? You see no fault in the creation of the most beneficent. Then again. Then look again. Do you see any rifts? Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is challenging human beings to look at the creation of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and He asks you, "Do you see any faults? Do you see any inconsistencies? Do you see any gaps in the creation of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala?" And then again in the following ayah in Surah Al-Mulk, He goes from ayah three to four. He says, then look again, and yet again, your sight will return to you in a state of humiliation and worn out. Every single time you look at the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to try to challenge the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, the regularity of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the consistency of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to function, allows us to exist. If there was no regularity in the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we could not study it. And thereby, uh, we could not ascertain patterns in the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There would be no such thing as science. If there was not a consistency in the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so one would say, well, what about death? What about destruction? What about pandemics? Part of the consistency of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that everything has a beginning and everything has an end. Because we look at things in a very simplistic way. We would say that the best and most reliable cars that are coming off the production line are the ones that are made consistently. So if they're made consistently, all the parts will fit. We know what to expect. We know that uh, the uh, uh, you know, the tires will fit. We know that the alternator for all the same uh, vehicles is going to be the same. There's going to be that level of consistency. We know it's, they should be consistent in passing safety regulations. And so we look at it in a very, very simplistic way. But again, we don't look at it in a, sometimes in a complete way because those cars have a beginning. Those cars have an end. Those cars aren't flawed flawless even though they pass a safety inspection there may be a recall and so what we have to appreciate is that trials and tribulations a beginning and end death and destruction are a reality of creation Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he tells us in surah al-mu'minun ayah 30 when he talks about the flood that occurred to the people of Nuh alayhi salam he says they are indeed signs for people of understanding. For sure, we are always putting people to the test. We are always testing people. So this is a consistency. This is a reality. This is a consistent reality of creation because it would be inconsistent if Allah would let some people live forever and others would have a beginning and end like or others would have you know everyone needs to have a beginning but he would let others maybe live forever and uh he would have 
uh, some people uh, that, you know, they would die. Or you have nations that would ne- would be untouched with calamity. And if we recall the previous podcast, the uh, brother, the sheikh, he was mentioning how uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, he likes to see his attributes in the creation. Obviously, it's not on the same level, but we see a humanized version of those attributes. So if uh, Ibn al-Qayyim says that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is compassionate and he loves those who are compassionate. Uh, he is merciful to his servants uh, and he shows compassionate uh, compassion to them. So uh, he wants his servants to be merciful and compassionate to one another. This is a praiseworthy trait. And if we look at uh, the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the consistency in what Allah has created for uh, us to even exist, we realize that consistency is a praiseworthy trait. We realize that consistency in our character, being steadfast, being patient upon the truth is something that is praiseworthy, is something that we should all strive and struggle to attain. And this is why the hadith of Rasul he states that the most beloved actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are the ones that are done consistently even though they are small. They are the ones that are done consistently even though they are small because then what does that mean? What does that mean? That means you do things based on principle. That means you do things based upon the truth. That means you do things based on what is just and not necessarily on your emotional state because your emotional state can fluctuate very, very easily. It's very easy uh, for your emotions, even within a day, within an hour to fluctuate, to go from happiness to sadness, uh, to laughter, to joy. You can see those emotions sometimes when people watch a movie, they go through this emotional roller coaster. So if we base our actions purely on emotion, then we are not being just to ourselves. We are not necessarily being just to others. If we are doing things based on emotion, then it doesn't mean necessarily that we are doing things uh, based on uh, the truth or principle. It may coincide with that. And that's why they say that uh, a broken clock is uh, right at least twice in a day. So it can coincide with that, right? So you could do something emotionally, you're feeling a lot of compassion towards your fellow human being. Let me be giving to them. Let me give them a face mask. Let me sanitize myself. Let me do social distancing. Let me see if my neighbor needs something because I'm feeling very compassionate at that moment. I'm feeling very, very merciful at that moment. But then maybe when you're touched with some stress and anxiety, when you're touched with some selfishness, can you be consistent with your good deeds? Can you be consistent? Uh, for for a Muslim to be truly successful, uh, it demands that you are consistent upon the truth. Your salah isn't three times a day, one day, four times a day, the next day, zero the other day. It's commanded upon you to do salah five times a day. To be consistent upon the salah five times a day. It's required that you're consistent upon not associating partners 
with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. We are commanded to not oppress people, not occasionally, but consistently. And so we find ourselves right now uh, within this pandemic. We find ourselves in a stage where we're trying to be consistent with social distancing, with many measures. We're trying to be consistent upon um, acting collectively to benefit the collective. So not acting individually, but acting collectively. Okay, thinking about the collective. And so there is a pull. There is a temptation. There's an emotional pull because everybody's situation is different. Some people during this pandemic, this lockdown, they're losing more money than others. Others are itching to get going. Their their businesses are suffering. So everybody is on a different, different stage. But can we be consistent on this at this time, at this juncture uh, for uh, not ourselves, not for our emotional needs, but for something uh, that we can principally say is important, that we can go to the truth and say that being compassionate to others, being merciful to others, being just uh, to others is something that we should do consistently. Because guess what? Part of the consistency of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is He is always putting us to the test, and our test at this point in the pandemic will be different than our test yesterday, and our test yesterday will be different than the test that we'll be facing tomorrow. But that's just as consistent as uh, uh, as the test itself that we will be put within a test. But the consistency is that test will be different for everyone uh, at different time periods. So uh, today I would like moving forward, I want to introduce our next guest, uh, Dr. Ahmad. I have known uh, the brother for many years, um, close friends. We have worked um, uh, many years in the past uh, in, in Dawa in community work. And he is currently uh, a doctor practicing in uh, the epicenter of the United States right now. So New York right now is the epicenter of the pandemic within the United States. And uh, I think his experience is gonna be invaluable. I think what he will share with us will be invaluable. And so I would like to welcome to the podcast, our dear brother, Dr. Ahmad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sayyid. How are you doing? Uh, alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well. It's good to see you again. Uh, not too many opportunities to see you face to face. So this is uh, an added benefit for myself. And um, you're you're right now in a very uh, unique place uh, and time, not only now, but probably uh, in human history. When we look back at it, this pandemic is something for the history books. This is like going to be a chapter that people are going to study in medical textbooks and history textbooks. Uh, so you're in a very, very uh, unique position right now. And this morning, I actually uh, watched a press briefing by uh, the governor of your state, Andrew Cuomo, mm-hmm. and uh, he was updating uh, on some statistics. So he was updating the people uh, and the press on some statistics. So. Uh, from what he says, uh, even though you're you are the at the epicenter, you're dealing with a phenomenal amount of cases. 
He says that the total uh, hospitalization has actually decreased at this point. And um, he's mentioned that even though you've had a high number of deaths every day, it has now started to decrease. As of April 17th, there was 540 deaths. Uh, hospitalizations per day are still at pretty high level, but they are lower from its height. So you're looking at about 2,000 uh, hospitalizations uh, per day. Uh, is this some? Is this what you're seeing on the ground? Is this uh, your reality that you are also witnessing on the ground that things uh, were crazy but are starting now to get better? Yeah, Hamlet. So it's actually it. It was there was what we would call a peak. Uh, I felt like maybe about a week ago, and you could actually feel it. But the amount of patients inside the hospital and the way things are going, now it's not much better. So let's say if that was a peak and that was a ten out of ten in in severity, we're maybe at like a nine out of ten realistically. So it's okay. It hasn't gotten worse, but uh, it definitely hasn't gotten significantly better. Um, okay. But in overall, in terms of numbers, we are headed in the right direction. Okay, so uh, another statistic that he shared is that with the social distancing me measures, with um, essentially New York being put on pause, and uh, with the use of face masks in, in public, there is a uh, reduction in the infection rate. So they're seeing that, but it, it's so small. Like prior to this reduction, they were at about 1.4. So 1.1 person, on average would infect 1.4 people. Now they're saying it's 0.9. So the reduction is still almost like one person. One person is still infecting one person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there is still uh, a, a pretty decent infection rate. So do you feel that um, the, the, the uh, like what is, is it just taking time for these measures to have more of an effect? Or do you feel that not enough people are wholeheartedly implementing these measures? So I think it's a little bit of both. I think the fact that we've seen the slowdown definitely has to do with social distancing. I don't think that's, um, I think it's, 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 the connection's fairly obvious because we are seeing a, a slower number of admissions to the hospital. Mm. Uh, the number of deaths are, are staying the same, but those are people that have been hospitalized for maybe 15, 16, 17 days. So um, along with that, there's also been a change in the way they're reporting the number of deaths. Before they were reporting deaths as coronavirus confirmed deaths, we would do a test in the hospital. It would come back positive, and then if they passed away, then there was a confirmed death. Now what, we're doing, now what they start including was uh, coronavirus-related or coronavirus-associated deaths. So maybe somebody yeah. passed away at home or maybe people passed away um, in nursing homes. I think they, they weren't including those before either. So, because okay. uh, what, ha what happens is in a lot of people in nursing homes are do not resuscitate, do not intubate, do not hospitalize. They've made a decision okay. for their end of life to be uh, not to go through those processes. So if they develop a pneumonia, but you're not going to do a testing for it, how do you know with 100% coronavirus pneumonia? But let's yes. say now eight people on the same floor have it. Well, it's very likely a coronavirus. So I think they started including those numbers as well. That's why the numbers continue to seem to go up. But I think in terms of the admissions, I can tell you. Uh, so I, I, I just finished a, uh, um, a shift maybe about six hours ago in the ICU. So I can tell you that we didn't have any new admissions that I did overnight, which is the first night that's happened. Oh, but, okay. 
that doesn't mean that we didn't have a bunch of things happen otherwise in the hospital. Yeah, like what are some of uh, like the big things that you're dealing with that, uh, you know, causes everyone's attention to be drawn to? So uh, the biggest thing is always like something like a code blue. Okay. Right, that happens a lot. So uh, earlier in the week, two weeks ago, uh, they were happening on a very regular interval basis, like every hour they were happening. Uh, but or sometimes it's like unusual. If you have a joke of medicine thing that happen in in clusters, so you'd get like four back to back and nothing for two three hours. But there was a consistent amount happening every night. So that's what uh, they're happening a little bit less. I think we're getting a little bit better at managing. I mean, somewhat managing the disease. The truth of the matter is what nobody will tell you in the media or nobody I feel like has been clear about is that we really don't have a treatment or management for this. All what we're doing is called supportive mm. care medicine. Right. And what supportive care is, is we're supporting the blood pressure if the blood pressure is low. We're supporting the lungs if the person is unable to breathe. We're supporting the heart with um, with more medications. We're supporting the kidneys with dialysis. And we're letting the body's own immune system uh, actually take care of the virus. The issue with that uh, is that if someone has an immune system that's not strong, I mean, um, they're unable to the virus not unable to handle the virus, and people end up going to going into multi-organ dysfunction and passing away. But the um, that's kind of what we're seeing inside the hospital, and all these trials that you hear about hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, yeah. um, the IL-6 inhibitors, none of that has been proven in any placebo trial to be effective. Have you used that at all? Are people using oh, yeah. that? We use that here. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah, we use that here. This is like a regular protocol. But yeah. the amazing thing is, is that it's not proven to be of any benefit. So are you, you're not seeing even anecdotally any benefit? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think you can't even tell some like the same person with the same characteristics, let's say roughly the same amount yeah. of years old, the same comorbidities, will come in, we'll give them the exact same treatment, and one will pass away and one will survive. So is it yeah. really the medication or would they have gotten better despite the medication? You know, yeah, what I'm you know they've been touting the study out of France where they treated a thousand patients and there was uh, some type of benefit uh, with this uh, treatment protocol. Uh, but... Uh, there's, it's true, there's no consistent studies, or at this point, you can't even do a peer-reviewed study, right? Like, oh. there's not going to be so much criticism uh, on a study at this point. But um, even anecdotally, you're not seeing too much of a change with uh, these treatment modalities. Um, what about the testing? Uh, Governor Cuomo, he mentioned that, uh, you know, testing has gone up and that he has mentioned that um, there are some challenges in terms of the fact that there's so many different private manufacturers of these tests and these testing labs are having a hard time getting the reagents for this test. So like, you know, all the different equipment for the, for the, for the tests. So um, do you find that testing is go going up or is it like plateauing now the, your ability to do testing because of this log jam in terms of getting the proper materials for testing uh, with the labs or what's, what's your take, uh, what's going on on the ground there? So at my facility, um, they developed their own test. And okay. so we're not relying on um, the government testing that the government governments are trying to arrange. Because it's two different things. Uh, when this first started, there was an issue with testing. You probably, you know, it was in the media. 
So our yes. facility decided to make its own uh, test. So our turnaround time is between six hours and 12 hours. We can have a, a test um, read. And, and testing is not um, difficult for our patients or ourselves. So I was, my, I was tested last week on Friday because I thought I had some symptoms and Humla was negative. But okay. I, ca- I called into the process for us is we call into a, a hotline. We tell them uh, you know, what our symptoms are. And then there's a, a doctor or another, um, like a nurse practitioner or, or a physician assistant on the other line. And they go through an algorithm and they decide, oh, wait, you, you meet criteria for testing or not. So uh, I went and got a test. It took like my appointment. Took, I got an appointment, 30 minutes, took a test, came back and had my results in 12 hours. So, so being a healthcare worker, are they only testing you if you feel that you may be coming down with something or are they regularly testing you because you could be asymptomatic, right? And you're in a high risk zone. So what is the protocol for you as a healthcare worker? So our facility protocol is symptomatic workers get tested first. That happened like, let's say two weeks ago. And then it went to uh, asymptomatic uh, workers that had been ex- exposed to either the positive coworkers or positive patients without protective equipment. Then after that was asymptomatic, but had worked in these units. And then it went down to um, uh, asymptomatic, but concerned. Mm. So they were even doing that. Cause I think the idea behind it as well, it will help us with epidemiologically after the fact, when we realize how many people, as you mentioned, were positive, but asymptomatic. And the other th- useful thing I think from that would be, you know, there's a lot of this um, plasma donation and the use of plasma. So if somebody is positive, maybe they've developed antibodies, can donate plasma. That's actually one thing that I okay. know studies have shown to be very positive, but not specifically with coronavirus, but it was, I think they did that with SARS and it was like 90, 95% effective. So, oh, really? uh, so I think that's something it, 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 medically and, and scientifically, it makes sense. So it, it's, uh, you know, I can't speak on it for specific coronavirus, but I know that it's, it's very promising. Okay. So um, now, if a, if somebody does test positive, uh, another uh, point or struggle that the governor was mentioning is uh, trying to do contact tracing. It takes an incredible amount of resources, uh, investigation to do that. Uh, do you take part of that as being a healthcare worker to try, to, or is there another team that uh, works on you know trying to uh, trace everyone that uh, an infected person was in contact with? Uh, no, I'm not involved in that at all. I, me, myself, or any of my colleagues, we don't have time to go chase down uh, anyone. Or like in a, you don't do like a preliminary questionnaire at the facility, like, okay, who are you in contact with and, and whatnot? Do you, like I'm, I'm saying, do you play any role in that stage or in that process? Of course. So it will be uh, trying to get an idea of who maybe, where they contracted it, but to that point, and then they're, to be honest with you, I don't think there's anybody from the hospital. I think I think that's like supposed to be a government um, uh, sort of mandated thing. I don't think the facility itself. I don't think we just have the resources to do that. We do like, for example, some somebody has coronavirus. We ask them, where do you think you most likely got it from? Believe it or not, a lot of people don't know, unless they had a positive family member already admitted. Those are the only people we know uh, that um, we can chase them back to that one particular person. But then now getting to that person who might be admitted to another facility becomes even harder to ask them where maybe they got it from. The issue here is uh, maybe the governor, I think maybe has talked about it before, um, is that there's really in a privatized healthcare system, 
there's really not a lot of communication between different uh, private hospitals. Okay. So, um, and so there's just not a lot of information sharing. And so you could have one family member admitted to a different hospital, maybe another family member admitted to our hospital, but there shouldn't be no information sharing. So you don't even know, that, and the truth in the way it's also negative, you don't know maybe they're doing something that's working in their facility that we're not doing or vice versa. Okay. And so they're, it's a very disjointed system. You know, I, I think I, my hope is I think I think in Canada it would be a little, there'll be a bit more information sharing since it's not privatized, it's not a for-profit system. Yeah. There, yeah, I, I, there is a shared database here, uh, which I think makes things a lot more synergistic in, in dealing with, uh, you know, patient care. So is there any call right now then? This is a perfect, I would say, um, impetus for some type of national database, you know, for for that, you know, for, for because, for example, you don't have uh, – a lockdown between states, right? So people can go in between states. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, they open the beaches in Florida now. So they're trying to, uh, certain states are starting to open. So now if you have people, tr like, uh, it, it could be very chaotic without, uh, I would say, a level of some type of uniformity, either in tracking, either in policies. But it just seems like the instructions has been given, okay, governors will handle that however they see fit within their own state and then you have also within that as you're mentioning a more privatized system mm -hmm. so is there any call for that is there any efforts towards making some type of uh database for information sharing um i not that i've heard i mean not that it might not exist i it's not something that i've, I've heard of directly um i think there's been calls for maybe like a more um like a society healthcare system here due to this because I mean really the fire system differentiating between um, famous and not famous rich and poor everybody is susceptible to the virus so yeah. I think there's been a calls towards uh, more of a society healthcare system so everybody has a coverage because it, it's you know the burden now I mean it's for-profit a lot of these for-profit hospitals now are forced to like use all these resources and they're usually cutting very thin profit margins. So now there's a good chance a lot of these hospitals might go out of business. And uh, that really should, when you're always a for-profit, if you're always, if you're mixing healthcare and profits um, and and you're you're running like way really within margins because there's executives and shareholders mm -hmm. and stuff to pay, um, it's not going to be a good uh, situation when it, a calamity hits. You know? Yeah, because uh, I, I think you make a very valid point because a for-profit model really works very well when um, when you do have people suffering from different things. You know what I mean? So it works uh, probably very beautifully, especially in, in terms of compensation schedules and so forth. But when you have uh, so much of the population having to deal with the same thing, then as you mentioned, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be somebody who's rich and famous, a celebrity, a politician, uh, a person with a very, very simple job, and an unemployed person. Everybody is in the same boat. And if you don't treat the whole population, you're not really saving yourself. You know, mm -hmm. so if, for example, you're dealing with something you need a surgery for, you go in, you deal with that surgery, you're okay, it's fine. Because Again, that's not something that can infect anyone. You're dealing with something for yourself. It's localized to yourself. 
But say you were able to get um, saved with, like, say you have you had coronavirus, you had a vaccine, you saved yourself. Bulk of the population still is dealing with that. It still will affect you mm-hmm. because it can mutate. You can get you can still get reinfected. We know that you know people take the flu vaccine every year. You can still get the flu, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think something like this is like okay, why should we have a universal healthcare system? Okay, pandemic, right? right. Yeah, so, and it's not theoretical. It's not theoretical, you know. Right. Um, what I want to know actually is, uh, so we get a good window. What's a typical day for you like? What's a typical day uh, in the midst of all of this for you? Um, okay, so I can I I guess we can talk about let's say like an ICU shift. So what happens is. Uh, we will talk about a little bit about my background. So I'm, I'm a board certified internal medicine physician. I trained in Louisiana, actually, and then I came here for a fellowship. That's what I'm actually doing here, uh, a fellowship. And initially, when this thing sort of started, you know, um, nobody expected it to be the way it was. So first, it started off with um, uh, we've done a few things for COVID. Um, we're going to be very careful about who we let in and out of the hospital and only one one uh, visitor per family and we'll screen them before they come in. All right, fine. And then it became, okay, well, slowly we've turned one of the wards into a COVID, one of the floors into a COVID floor. We're like, all right, fine. So then it was like two days later, like, okay, the ICU is full of COVID patients now. Mm. Like, all right, well, now it's getting serious. And like two days later, it's like, Okay, now we've turned this whole building into a COVID building now, like not just the floor. Yeah. Like now we've taken over the uh, the sur- SICU, the surgery ICU. Now we've taken over the pediatric ICU. Now we've yeah. taken over the neuro ICU. And it just kept snowballing and snowballing. Initially, there was a, a, it, was like a it was like a surprise and like a, it felt like everybody was stuck in mud or a little bit slow. But now, once- is there a mandate? I just wanted to ask at this point, mm-hmm. is there a mandate uh, for hospitals whether they're private or not to see covid patients uh so there's a there's a, um uh an act called the imtala emergency medical uh services act is a whole long it's called imtala it's like a um a federal act where if you present to any emergency department in the united states with a life-threatening illness you have to get treated regardless of finances or not the hospital can pursue you after for repayment but they have to treat you and this happened after things. Now, it's very nice and pretty. Does it always happen that way? I don't know. Our hospital's great, but um, I can't speak for every hospital, but there is an act for this. So, yes, if you get to the hospital, regardless of insurance or not, regardless if it's private or not, you will be treated okay. for COVID, regardless okay. if you're documented or undocumented, all this other stuff. Because I know there's fear out there. You hear it a lot in the, in the U.S. It's a big deal being doc, undocumented. So, yeah, like everybody can, everybody is, is by law supposed to get treatment. Okay, and so that's maybe what also uh, caused this to happen, right? Because they can't turn them away. They can't turn COVID patients away. They they have to see them. Right. Of course. Of course. So uh, yeah. So anyways, that's kind of how we, you know, kept sm- snowballing. So initially, it, the idea was. Uh, the COVID patient is going to be managed by our attending physicians at the hospital. And then it came to uh, now, okay, we're going to, our residents are going to manage them. And then it came to, uh, we need fellows to help manage, um, help cover ICU that night. Mm. We're not forcing you guys, but we'd love for you to volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
it's appreciated. So, but at yeah. this point, like, um, the truth is, at that point, I didn't, uh, and we're not even at the point where they're forcing fellows to work. So, um, okay. the, the at this point, I'm, I was like, I think maybe this is the will of Alfonso, maybe it's a color of Alfonso, put me in a situation to work here. Yeah, I heard that there was pediatric residents that were volunteering in their ICUs to manage adult patients, which I mean, for anybody who's been in the healthcare field, like I can't imagine treating a pediatric patient. I just wouldn't know how, even though you yeah. think they're little people, but they're not. They're so much more different. Yeah. And um, so I felt like, you know, all these people are are, are stepping up. I am I'm left in very good training in Louisiana. I felt like I had this uh, our critical care attending in Louisiana was this brother named Dr. Alabasi, who was very, very tough on you. Um, yeah. Like very, very tough. But if now, as you as now being in situations like this, I realized why, because he, yeah. he trained you really well to um, yeah to uh, to be ready for this. So now, so at this point, I'm like volunteered and I said, I'll, I'll help cover some ICU nights. So okay. I so now that brings us to today. What's a typical day a night like? So I show up around 7 p.m. Uh, at this point, uh, one of the ICUs is signed out to me and I work with the residents for all the admissions and evaluations and codes and, and, um, and, and rapid responses. So there are critical care fellows, uh, fellows that are doing specifically critical care medicine. These guys are amazing. Imagine they're mm. handling like four or five times many, many patients. Then there's a few of us fellows that are not from critical care and these, each ICU has a resident intern and of course a bunch of nurses. So throughout the night, what happens is we go and take our um, a stock of who our patients are, depending on which IC we are assigned. We get 12 to 16 critically ill patients. Mm. Uh, so we kind of make sure everything's doing okay at that point. Speak to the nurses, make sure the nurses are comfortable. So if there's anything they're concerned about, speak to the residents. And then yeah, it kind of just starts the night. After that, you're waiting on calls from the ICU, uh, calls from the emergency department for admissions, calls from the, because there's patients that are admitted that are not in the ICU as well, that aren't that yeah. bad, but they get better. What, 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 what type of PPE are you wearing? Like, so you're going on your shift because, uh, you know, you see various <laughs> levels. Are you wearing the full body suit with just your face and then you're covering it with the N95 and goggles? Like, what, what are you wearing on a typical day? So I wish I was wearing that, but that's, that's not yeah. what I'm wearing. Yeah. So just what a scarf. I'm wearing, just, just a scarf over your yeah. head. Yeah, <laughs> a red bandana. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a red, and a cowboy hat. A red bandana and a cowboy hat. Um, no, so <laughs> where I'm wearing is, um, I do get an N95, but it has to be reused. And once again, I think we were talking about this earlier, before we would take, yeah. use a new N95. So an N95, a face shield, I'm like, we're good with face shields, uh, um, uh, like a surgical cap or a, a bouffant to cover my hair and a plastic um it's called an isolation gown but for people that haven't seen it what i would describe it as is it's like a uh cooking a cooking apron mm. right like a but like not, what a butcher maybe would wear you know correct. they have that kind of yeah mm -hmm. okay so uh you're using you're reusing the n95 how do you reuse an n95 mask so uh the idea is so what we are given this is at hospitals across the country uh, a, a, a paper bag so you take it off and you put it in the paper bag and then you carry the paper bag with you um and the idea being whenever you need it you put it back on and it stems from the theory once again uh, i don't know the data 100 percent behind it that uh that uh if it's in a breathable sort of environment i guess or like because because plastic would, it would you know there would be no 
it wouldn't it would be kind of closed in. So the idea is that it, you the, it would that um, the virus can't last as long because you're you know it's in a porous environment. Okay. Um, so we, we carry that background. We carry every time we step out of a room, we take a shield. We wipe the shield with a um, a solvent or like a wipe, and then we put it in a bag as well. And we carry those bags around to every consult and stuff like that. So that's what's going on. Ideally, I'd like to wear what you see in the news, where they're what they're using in yeah. like you know Korea and China, and yeah. and the East, where they wear the full the full bunny suit or the or the Tyvek suits uh, yeah. with the goggles and stuff like that. So, but in saying that, that's what's provided to us. What I actually do is I have my own goggles, and I have I have for a demo for you guys. I have one of these. Uh, I use okay. one called a, um, a half mask respirator or an elastomeric mask. Okay. And the idea is that this filter, I don't use this particular one, otherwise I wouldn't be holding it; it'd be contaminated. Yeah. This is the one. This is one I bought that ended up being counterfeit, so I figured it'd be good for demo. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see a lot of those being sold right now. Uh, eBay, Amazon, you mm-hmm. know. And a lot of them are coming out of, ironically enough, China and, uh, you know, places like that. So, yeah, so you got to be careful if anybody's interested in buying stuff like that. Um, this one I got is is definitely counterfeit. The reason I know is another brother who had a legitimate one. Uh, yeah. He sent it to me because uh, he, he, you know, he asked if I wanted this. And I said, yes, but they came around the same time. And I compared them. And this one, when you put a mask like this on, you do a negative pressure and a positive pressure test. And it fails both of them miserably. So oh, okay. it, you can't in any good conscience even trust the filters that come with it. But his uh, mask was great, and I'm glad I used that. So I feel a little bit more protected not having to use reuse a week's old, week old N95, you know. Yeah. They, they accidentally sold me uh, a 3N mask. I didn't look. It was <laughs> – it's 3N. It's 3N. N. <laughs> You're supposed to sell me a 3M mask, you know. <laughs> I'm sure people are making money, right? People like capitalize on situations like this. Uh, so you take that ma- or so you have your own respirator then that you take. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you so so you don't even use the their, the one that they gave you the N95. Well, so the thing is, um, the re- the respirator is a bit cumbersome. So if you're going to be like, if you're going to be very specific, so if I'm at bedside doing a procedure, I'll wear the respirator. If I'm um, if I'm just going in to evaluate somebody quickly, I wear the N95 that we're provided because, like, the actual filters themselves have a certain lifespan. Yeah. They're very hard to order now, so I can't just use it for like you know, 20, 12 hour full tell hour shift and not expect to decrease the life of the actual filters themselves. So you know, we have to ration even the, the use of our filters. You know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, uh, okay, so now. You're you're suited up. You're dealing with situations. So what 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 are some of the, um, I guess you could say the most intense situations that you would deal with in a day? Oh, so I I mean it's 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 code blues. You know, uh, the issue we're having is uh, a lot of people. The truth is, if um, we're finding that a lot of people that have code blues during this. Um, uh, during this pandemic, it's hard because there's so many of them. First, that's the amount. And the other issue with, with, with this is when you have a code blue, it's just what you see in the movies where somebody comes in, does CPR, and then, you know, you're watching like the TV shows that come in, they clear and they shock mm. you and stuff like that. That's uh, nobody actually does that. Like the shocking part, we have paddles, but the, mm. the CPR part, it's a super spreader event. 
So it's maybe I don't think the media is talking about it, but when you do the CPR, you're actually pumping on somebody's chest and you're, you actually take them off the ventilator if they're on a ventilator, if they're not on a ventilator, mm-hmm. you're bagging them or something. Yeah. Every time you push on their chest, uh, you're causing virus particles to be go out into the air and you're literally infecting everybody in the room. And a mm-hmm. code is run with like um, at least six to 10 people in there. There's multiple people doing trading off doing CPR. There's one or two people doing uh, doing the bagging, providing airway by put, holding the bag, the ambu bag, and one person holding the mask. There's two to three nurses in the room either getting access or giving the medication that you're telling them to give. So that all these people are being infect, uh, infected um, uh, during this time. And that's the craziest thing. Because one, you're putting yourself at the greatest risk at that time. Mm-hmm. And as well, it's the, it that is the moment uh, where either the patient will uh, will you know, will survive or not survive. That's the most critically ill moment. And and realistically, you do the same thing every single time. It's an algorithm. There's nothing, um, you know, just to be realistic about this. It's not like the movies we're doing. We're not house. You're not discovering something new at that moment. You're just following an algorithm. You see a rhythm on a monitor. You're just doing the next step, next step, next step, mm. depending on how old the patient is and how many core morbidities they have. And if you do not get return of spontaneous circulation, you decide when to call it when we're done trying. Uh, depending if they're younger, you go longer. If they're not as young, a lot of comorbidities, you try your best for a certain period of time. Because now you're because you're risking everybody as well. Because every time you get, let's say, you get a nurse sick, a nurse manages what eight to ten patients a shift. That's how, that yeah. per night on a seven day week. That's seventy patients that aren't going to be seen by somebody, or you might have to yeah. get some replace her. So yeah. um, uh, you know you you want to protect your your, uh, your the people that you work with as well, and 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 you know the. Um, the nurses and, and the, the assistants, everybody's just, they're just amazing, you know, uh, coming out and doing this. And it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I've seen some, yeah. I've seen some reports that people from other parts of the country are also coming in to try to help. Uh, do you see m- much people, uh, doing that, uh, where you're located? Yeah, we have, we have, we have travel nurses and travel physicians here. Yeah. Okay. So they've come in specifically to help. Yeah. So what happens is in in a, in a regular hospital setting, we have an ICU. You know, we have different ICUs, and we have ICU trained nurses, and they just cover those ICUs. And, and ICU nurses are like the, you know, the top cream of the crop of nurses, or like trauma nurses. Uh, like the, they're just uh, they're they're amazing. Um, so what happens is a hospital only has so many of them, and mm. um, when you have to turn all these different units into ICUs, uh, a lot of nurses are stepping up, but if they haven't been trained to do ICU stuff, they can't, you're, pub, you're, you're compromising care at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of nurses can step up and do it. Uh, a lot of nurses have been doing amazing jobs, but there's also nurses that like, uh, that are only do like maybe our surgical nurses that are only in the ORs just for surgeries. They're not used to doing regular, you know, bedside care and patients. So you need nurses that have training uh and those are the nurses that are showing up and and, and doing the traveling nursing and, and stuff like that yeah and, and i think that's again in, in any tragedy there's opportunities for uh people to really set a very good example right like uh, i think this is what can really inspire people to emotionally mentally get through uh this is you know some of what we set for each other as a tone you know because i remember when this whole hoarding fiasco really took off yeah, that has a very negative effect on the state, the emotional state of everyone, you know. But then when you see, okay, people are being uh, unselfish, you know, they're 
trying to contribute, they're sacrificing themselves, then it shows you the uh, the capability of humanity, the capacity that we have uh, in terms of uh, caring for one another in the face of adversity, in the face of death, you know, at, at this time. Uh, you mentioned ventilators there. I just want to, for a moment, want to see, do you have enough ventilators? Or is there a shortage of ventilators or do you have now enough ventilators? No, so, you know, Alhamdulillah, we're good. Uh, our hospital is yeah. good. We have enough ventilators. We received some from the uh, the national stockpile. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know. I heard they're very beautiful ventilators. They're perfect. <laughs> they're the most perfect, high-quality ventilators. They're perfect. That's what, I, that's, that's what I've been told. Um, <laughs> they work. <laughs> and uh, I, there's also companies, I believe, like automotive companies who are uh, repurposing their facilities to make ventilators. Have you seen that uh, now into production? No, not at all. I don't think I think by the time we'll get those vents, uh, yeah. we won't need them. That's the truth. OK, uh, so I think, okay. you know, I, that's just it. And, and I mean, in saying that the National Stockpile vents, they do work. They're not the newest, uh, but right now, you know, you really can't, you can't, you're just happy to have them, you know, but they yeah. look like something that came off a of DeLorean. That's, that's all I'm going to say. No joke. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's not, it's not mechanical, right? You don't have to like, somebody has to wind it up. It's. They are analog. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. And they're, okay. They're, they're, and you take changing on them by using a rotary. For all the people that don't know, back in the day, phones used to, you have to turn. You, yeah. have to, you have to do something like that. Yeah. So I think this is a big wake-up call, I, probably for everything, stockpiles, like um, for absolutely everything. Um, now, what is the level of fear and anxiety on the ground? Because I was surprised to see that there's so many uh, voices for people to just start to reopen uh, the economy or reopen uh, you know, they're from the restrictions, businesses, et cetera, uh, public gatherings. So there's this call to do that. Do you see that same call in New York or maybe that's more re relegated to other parts of the country or maybe it's being blown out of proportion for, you know, um, politically for certain reasons? What do you see? Is there still that fear and anxiety or is there now an itchingness to get, you know, things back to normal uh, where you're uh, located? So where I'm at, um, this is a little bit harder to gauge uh, when you're not going outside, right? Yeah. So, uh, but I think the people here, they kind of realize um, a lot of people know somebody that maybe had coronavirus or was infected by it. It's very obvious. Um, there's images on on the news and stuff of, of these freezer, these you know, these freezer trucks out with bodies at the morgues are overfilled. Um, there's an island here for unclean bodies that people go in to get they they're buried there. So I, I, so I think people um, I think people know uh, the population here, particularly in this area uh, in New York, realizes the um, the impact of it, and there hasn't been any of these. It, it's I mean it, this is the epicenter, and it's part of the reason it's the epicenter is so congested. Everybody lives on top of each other. The amount of the there's so much use of public transportation and the amount that can that can the ability for it to spread is so much greater that I think nobody here is itching to uh, to do things. I think it's, I think it's in more in the rural communities. And the truth is, like 
uh, having trained in Louisiana and have lived in rural uh, America, I mean, I can understand that, right? Houses are farther apart. Uh, there's a lot of space. Um, people don't, there's no, little to no use of public transportation uh, in some places. So they're thinking like, what's my risk? Why can't I go and continue to work? And it's, it's it, what, how, the way they're going about it, it's not very good by essentially going and meeting in a public place and going and spreading the virus essentially among themselves. Mm. But you, you can understand where some people are coming from. I mean, um, in some communities, uh, they could realistically probably reopen using PPE themselves as, as a community or as, as, uh, as people and prevent transmission. The only problem being, I feel like, is that there's no um, there's no uniform response here ever. Uh, you know, you, you can just tell already the politicians aren't on, on, on the same page with each other, hardly going to be able to coordinate something like this. So mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, you can kind of, you see where they're coming from. They want to be able to work and, and, and um, so uh, it's, it, it's tough, but in realistically, social distancing, that's what we need to do for a while. Yeah. Have you seen any uh, big tightening of basic supplies? Or are you still able to get your basic necessities for you and your family? Um, yeah, so when this first started, it was hard to get, um, uh, like toilet paper, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm just joking. We, you know, we were okay with that, but like you have mm -hmm. found there were issues with eggs. Eggs were hard to come by. Incidentally, like the price of eggs has skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Okay. Uh, milk was a little bit hard, uh, but I think that was due to the hoarding. Since then, now the issue is because of these restrictions and limits on time, when you go uh, to the store, if you have time to go, and then mm -hmm. what do you do? Uh, like, are you going to wait in line? And then now they start this thing where if you show your uh, hospital ID for healthcare workers, you can get out front uh, and get. Oh, okay. Line. But then it's like, uh, at least for me personally, like I feel bad. Like all these poor people who waited in line, I'm just stuck. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the one good thing about being in New York is you can you can get a lot of delivery. So we've been okay. good with delivery, um, but it is difficult. So before you could get a delivery, same day delivery. Now we're like delivering like like uh, ordering like two weeks in advance to get food delivered. Okay. So that's that's the issue. Uh, the other issue is getting um, a lot of the uh, the smaller stores were just forced to shut down because they found uh, and more specifically the if I'm going to be more specific in the uh, from what I was told in the South Asian community because they weren't keeping uh, like you know the South Asian stores and the ethnic stores more specific they weren't following mm. a lot of protocols when it came to cleaning. Okay. Uh, so it's hard to, I think they were apparently, and this, I'm just, uh, this is what I was uh, told, that they were closed so they could uh, sanitize and uh, then they were enforced to follow uh, mm. uh, protocols and stuff. Okay, I see. So uh, now, um, you know, we have a history of uh, working uh, together in the DAWA and the community. Have you, uh, any of your experience uh, with the Dawa, have you found that uh, to help you at all prepare for the struggle you're facing right now? Oh yeah, Hamla, for sure. I mean, um, so there's. I feel like the one thing you get um, when you when you do Dawa is that the idea being Dawa is you're going and um, you you trying to convince like the basic for me was always like trying to convince somebody of the beauty of Islam, right? And mm. and how amazing their religion is, and when you. You look throughout. You look through like um, if you put yourself as an individual uh, in whatever context. There's two ways to look at it. It's like 
why am I stuck in this situation? Why am I in, I'm in this pandemic? Uh, why did why did someone all do this to me? You know. Um, and then the other other way to look at it is, this is I'm in this. Allah put me here in this situation um, because that's what was, that was the will of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. This is what I was meant to be here. The situation. What am I going to do in this situation? And that's something that I feel like uh, you learn when you do dawa work because uh, when you do dawa work, you, it's it's an ever changing, ever changing field. You're going out uh, and um, uh, it's never the same. That was never the same as well. Like you're always mm-hmm. adapting situations. You're always thinking, "Why does my put me here? What's my purpose of being here? And what am I supposed to accomplish?" So I think uh, that I think the um, I think the other, you know. So I, I think that, I think I think that's part kind of you know the basics of it. I felt like just the experience of doing dawah and always kind of being in a situation and being able to adapt, you know, put you. I think that helps just doing the dawah work itself, not counting the amount of. Uh, just the amount of um, uh, uh, just the experience itself. Yeah, because uh, you know, because I know you uh, personally. It's not like you were casually involved in the dawah. We had some all-nighters. We had some times where, you know, we're writing exams, uh, we're putting on events, we're getting ready. Like we're pulling an all-nighter. I don't know if you remember those uh, late nights in the mix and. Uh, it's sometimes physically very demanding, mentally very demanding, emotionally, and uh, you know it, it, it was no easy task for sure. And to be consistent on that, uh, it, it, you really need to want to do it. You really need to have a strong why, you know. And do you feel that 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 purpose, like having always a higher sense of purpose, and in this sense, you're uh, worshiping Allah by serving humanity. Has that allowed you to stay consistent, like you're mentally, emotionally, uh, you know, what are you drawing upon to ha- keep that even keel? I'm glad you brought that up, the consistency. Um, so, but this is a personal uh, opinion. So for me, um, we know the life and death are given by Allah And so that's what base, is the basis for me when I go to work. And do anything that uh, this is because there's a I guess in in medicine there's this idea of a god complex you hear about and stuff like that very negative thing obviously but well, that's where that's where doctors think that they're the ones they themselves are saving people and they're like a god like I save lives or you know right right the, exactly I can, if I wasn't there the person would die so right exactly yeah. let me tell you in my experience on a side topic there are times where um, there's no way reason a person should have survived with something and they're perfectly fine. And and it's like mind boggling. Like, how could this person have had this happen? There are times um, during my training uh, that there are things that shouldn't have happened to a patient and happened and should have been detrimental and had made cause mortality. And it didn't happen. The person didn't die. And you're like, and at this moment, you realize when all these um, or there are times we do that, you do that where you do everything perfect. I mean, you do the right thing. You got the right diagnosis. You start the right medications on time within what the guidelines say that you should do, and people don't survive. So there's no way that, um, and you realize like you don't control or you have no control over this. There's, I mean, this is something that, as a Muslim, you're already aware that the control of life and death is in the hands of Allah mm-hmm. Taala, and you're you're this Allah put this person to get better just through your care but he's put him he also put him there 
No, you, no, you, you know, he didn't randomly just arrive here. Let's not put him here if this person's meant to survive. This person will survive if you do the right thing, but only for us all wants him to survive. Not no matter, you know, because you've seen, I've seen times where the wrong thing happened to the patient and they still survive. And how does that happen? You know, but yeah. so it, it's, it's, uh, it's for sure. Um, uh, in regards to, sorry, go back to your question, the consistency. Yeah. So for me, the basis is in the health of uh, my job is just to, um, to help them uh, to su- provide the supportive care to get them through this. So realistically, uh, I come home with a clean conscience every day. Um, mm-hmm. I do. Re- I, I remember the faces of all the patients that maybe have died under my care, but uh, I they don't. Uh, um, you know, they don't haunt me because I know that this is in the hands of Allah, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Allah is the one that decides life or death. So um, that's that's it's a personal uh, way I handle the situation. Mm-hmm. And what what about like because one of the things I find that the Dawit gives you very good communication skills, uh, you know, to deal with all sorts of different types of people. You know, you deal with haters, right? You people would deal with like, uh, and usually that hate comes from fear, right? So you learn to deal with people who have a lot of fears, and then you know you deal with uh, you know people in all sorts of different levels and uh, and uh, states of understanding. So have you have you found that uh, some of those communication skills have helped you? Uh, in your field at this time? Oh, alhamdulillah, for sure. So I think one of the, the great things about doing dawah is the, the leadership skills you learn. Mm. And so what happens in a, in the healthcare setting, as a physician, you're the leader on the on the healthcare team. And the healthcare team includes uh, you, residents that work with you, uh, interns that work with you. Medical, we don't have medical students in our facility uh, right now, but medical students mm. generally, uh, you have your nurses, you have your nurse managers, uh, you have respiratory therapists, you have just regular technicians, and they look to you for um, for leadership. If you're, um, and, the, and the skills you learn, I think one of the, the skills you learn in Dawa is to stay cool under pressure. Uh, mm-hmm. You always stay, especially with the haters that you talk about, so staying cool mm-hmm. under pressure. And um, when you're cool under pressure, it... Um, uh, have you it, had anyone, uh, like, say to you, uh, like... Uh, you know, question you whether you're Muslim and I don't want to be treated from a Muslim. Have you had that experience? Because I know some doctors have had that experience. That's what I'm asking. Me personally, no. But when I was in training in Louisiana, there was a sister that wore a hijab and uh, uh, she went to treat the patient and the patient said she doesn't want to be treated by a Muslim. And so the, you know, she wasn't treated. We had to switch to a different different provider. So yeah, it's something I've seen, uh, but it's. Um, but, but I guarantee you, that when when you're when you're in an emergency situation, you know you're at death's door. They're not they're not making that screening. They're not asking that question, right? They're not being like, you know, they're like Allah Akbar, come on, treat me, come on, give me some <laughs> hydroxychloroquine, give me something, you know. Right. Right? right they're not going to be doing that and and you're there you're and you're not screening them you're not saying hey uh what what you're there actually serving everyone uh whether they're a hater or not even if you maybe saw that you know person on tv hating you would still treat them because why why would you still treat them there the, these are people also want to tell it right like you know uh the, the whether the way i feel like it they uh you know, these are, these are the people I just want to tell, like, you save one life, you, you know, save all of humanity, right? Um, so uh, I, I would treat them because these are the people I just want to tell, like, they hate me, that's not, mm. I mean, you can't, 
uh, I'm not going to react to ignorance. And mm-hmm. so uh, the funny part is the reason I was smiling earlier was incidentally that it turns out that that patient got assigned to me, that totally but her sister, she got assigned to me in clinic. So she was my clinic patient for two years and she loved me. And, yeah. uh, and she didn't know you were Muslim. Oh, she knew. She asked me. Oh, she, so where oh, you she asked so I yeah, said, oh, yeah. I'm from Canada. And she's like, oh, you, you talk differently. I'm like, well, my parents are from Pakistan. And uh, there's like a bit of a look on her face. But I treated her very well. I didn't treat her any nicer than any of my patients. Yeah. I just treated her and uh, made sure she got better. And she loved me. Yeah. Uh, she never she never had an epiphany or anything where she was like, oh, I changed my mind. But my job yeah. was to provide her care regardless of how she acted towards me. Whether she choose yeah. to, chooses to follow my directions or not is her choice. And um and uh, so I was just going to provide her the same level of care, and you know, you we were fine. Yeah, yeah. So, but she, she didn't re- re- request another transfer, right? No, no, she didn't. No, she didn't. Like, I, I keep getting these Muslims. You know, <laughs> we just want to help you. We just want to make you better, so you can have a long life of like, you know, hating us. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know what? Uh, I, I bet you deep down inside, like, you know, after being treated for two, two years by you, she, uh, you, you develop an appreciation. You know, I think a lot of the conceptions people have about um, Muslims is never based on direct contact with Muslims. Uh, like vast majority of times, although Muslims aren't perfect, so I'm sure Muslims make mistakes and then people will be like, you know, oh man, I can't believe like I had this one Muslim guy who did this and this. So I, that probably does happen. But the vast majority of people who hate, um, they don't uh, have direct communication. You know, it's like I saw this uh, on the media, like I saw this on YouTube or I saw this in the media. I saw this somewhere else, but you never had that direct uh, contact. So when you have this direct contact, it makes such a big, I think, uh, difference. It's such a huge impact in people's lives, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the in the profession that you're in, because you're in a profession that uh, is uh, is vital for for human function, for human care, and especially in this type of situation, like you are in this uh, pandemic, you know. And do you find that? Uh, other doctors, do you, do you see the mental toll that it's taken, and how do you how do you see doctors in general reacting to this situation? Like, are there people who are becoming more introspective? Are there people who are being more religious? Uh, are there people who are uh, just starting to become more bitter? Like, what is the reaction amongst the, uh, medical workers dealing with this pandemic? You know, I think uh, I think everything you described, I I've seen. Um, there's a wide range. I think people are handling it differently. Uh, I have seen some uh, physicians panic uh, and uh, not want to have anything to do with the COVID patients and avoid it at all costs. And uh, listen, they have, there's a lot of reasons they have young children at home um, and they have, uh, maybe they live with their parents and their parents, they don't want to put their parents at risk. Um, yeah. there, there's, uh, I have noticed people becoming a little bit more religious. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that I feel like maybe I don't want to use the word demoralized, but uh, it's become like a way of life. And you could kind of tell it weighs on their conscience a little bit. I think they're trying to stay upbeat. Uh, but I think a lot of them, uh, I think they're, I think it may be demoralizing for them just seeing the amount of, um, of, of mortality, really, what we're seeing. That's, it's phenomenal. Like it, it can't, it it has to have such a crushing weight on you to see all these 
bodies pile up, even like, you know, you probably have so many different hospitals, but to have that load where you're talking about uh, five to 700 deaths a day, that's phenomenal. That's a phenomenal load to deal with. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, there's literally maybe um, a, like a freezer truck, maybe 100 feet, 150 feet from my house and from my front door uh, with, 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 with bodies in there. Um, and so yeah. it's, it's it's a lot. But, you know, I, I just go back and think this is, I, you know, I think maybe this is maybe just uh, maybe not the appropriate look at it. But I feel like, you know, maybe this this is for us, all of us, a reminder from El Swanta that, I mean, imagine like we have all the technology, we can do whatever we want in the, in the world, and then a virus hits and then it throws everybody, every country and all the people in that country just in, in disarray. And I think it's like a reminder to people that we don't have, we don't have as a, as a, as a, as a, um, as a people or as, as humanity, don't have as much control over ourselves as we think we do. There is a higher power. Now, some people who are unable to see it clearly might call it nature, but we know that, you know, that there's a world of Montal and that there's something else that is, um, that, that controls everything around us, you know, that we, we, we don't have full control of our environment. And I, I think that's a good, yeah. I think if you kind of look at it that way, um, you know, uh, you kind of realize that it's not as. Um, and, and I think it puts so much of life into perspective. What's important, what's mm -hmm. valuable, uh, what deserves our attention. I think, I don't think anybody who's in the same environment that you're in dealing with these piles of dead bodies, uh, you know, so many people who are sick, they're thinking themselves in the middle of the day, hey, I wonder what the Kardashians are doing right now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it puts life into perspective, right? Maybe you're talking about yourself. What have I done with my life? Uh, and uh, I really feel that, uh, uh, you know, for humanity, they should appreciate the uh, the incalculable effect, not only for yourself, but all of humanity when you give. You, you know what I mean? Like at times like this, you know, we have people in our lives that give to us all the time. We have teachers that give to us. Our parents have given to us. Uh, you know, uh, our friends have given to us. Spouses have given to us. We have so many people in our lives that have given so much. Uh, the firefighters, police office. Like there's people who give, right, who give. And, yeah, you know, people, uh, there's levels of self-interest. But I think just appreciating the actual practical contribution to human life, uh, you know, is uh, this is, really refocuses uh, the world. It kind of realigns that maybe we have this distorted, hazy picture of like looking at the world and what we gave attention to and, and all of these different things. Because right now, even though there's this impetus, OK, we need to restart the economy, the people who are in the middle of this. They, they, they're they like, we need to save people. We need to, uh, you know, uh, maybe f even fundamentally restructure our system so that uh, we can take care of people better. You know, these are some questions that I think people would not ask if they weren't going through this pandemic, right? Uh, it, it, it would be a business as usual. It would be, okay, we're just going to keep going Monday to Friday, Monday to Friday, like, uh, you know, uh, the weeks passing us by. But every day uh, it just seems different. You know, every week just seems different. 
you know. Uh, and it, sometimes it can be very easy to get lost in statistics. Okay, the curve and this many people and this percentage and whatnot. But at the end of the day, real human beings are uh, affected who have feelings, uh, who have people who count on them, uh, who, uh, you know, are are trying to do the best that they can in this situation, you know? No, Hamla, you're right. And, and the thing is, like, imagine you mentioned these people, uh, because of a strict visitor policy, policies, people are dying without family members. Mother Bexa, you know, uh, so yeah. imagine, imagine, uh, you know, the sort of it's uh, uh, the the pain families and people are going through. Yeah, I, I hope, you know, like regardless of uh, borders, regardless of nationality, regardless of all these identifying markers that we do to you know separate uh, humanity, I really hope that people go to a deeper understanding and a, and a deeper level, uh, you know, going through this process that uh, we, we we try to change the direction, uh, you know, that our society has been headed. You know, we we're talking about uh, Western society or modern society. Uh, I really hope we can do that for us as Muslims. And if I am sincere to my faith, I would say for humanity, is that to me, you, you turn to Allah, you turn to God, and uh, you go to those fundamental truths that can uh, benefit all human beings. You know, like universal things that, uh, for example, the hadith of Rasul want for mankind what you want for yourself. You know, these are universal values that only seek to benefit each other. You know, that only seek to, to to help one another out, whether we're in a pandemic or whether uh, we are outside of a pandemic. Because, you know, we don't want to be in a situation, uh, Ahmad, you know, we saw 100 years ago the Spanish flu, right? Mm -hmm. Probably uh, in recent, to, for this scale worldwide, okay, um, to affect uh, human beings globally. What happened after the Spanish flu? What are t major world events that happened? You know, so you had... World War Two, you know mm -hmm. what I mean. So mm -hmm. you had World War, you had World Wars around the same time, and you would hope that we would be more compassionate. The world would come together more. Everybody's affected. Like one in three people were infected mm -hmm. uh, with that virus. Uh, there was such a huge loss of life, anywhere between fifty to hundred million. Uh, you know, they didn't even have ways of being able to officially track in a lot of areas the amount of loss of life. But we still go, We then what happened? We go into, okay, World War II. And what happened after the this great war? Oh, we go into uh, the Cold War. You, so you have war in Korea. You have wars in Vietnam. And then wars in, in the Middle East. And, and Latin, for, don't forget the, all the wars that happened in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Man, uh, all of these different things, man. Like, I just hope that with such a, we can take that reminder. That let's, maybe be a little bit more humble. As you were saying, like, it's very easy to develop that God complex. Maybe you can get that complex after the pandemic. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I survived. I'm uh, undefeatable. You know, I was able to survive. Other people died. And you could, you're, instead of going through this process more humbled, mm -hmm. you're more arrogant. You know what I mean? No, you're right. I think I think if you don't come through this process realizing the, um, the, fragi the fragile nature of your existence, uh, and I, I think that maybe um, 
you've you've lost out a bigger lesson in, in this situation. So yeah, I I agree with you 100%. Especially I'm glad you brought up the Spanish flu. There's a there's a thought with the way this is uh, going that this could have a rebound effect on, on next uh, fall. That's what they saw with okay. Spanish flu. And they actually saw more deaths with Spanish flu in the fall. They're saying that this could ex- this could uh, happen with the coronavirus itself. So yeah. it's something to I think you know I I, I think this is something that's going to have a very long lasting effect on just good global community um, as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that's what they're saying is that there's going to be a rebound in the fall. And then these measures can be here for like a year, two years uh, in terms of generally social distancing or, uh, you know, fundamentally changing maybe how we interact with with one another, at least, you know, more than just a. obviously it's in a heightened period of lockdown or a state of lockdown, but it can a lot of these general social distancing or you'll see maybe much more common people wearing masks in public all the time for the, uh, for the foreseeable future. You know, a lot of these measures could still be in place, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I agree with you. And, you know, it's the, um, the other thing I, uh, that you mentioned is so in the hospital, we're able to, we have the masjids here aren't doing Juma right now. There's a ban on uh, people getting together. I'm not sure what it's like in, in Canada. It's but, the same thing here, yeah. But alhamdulillah, so we have a, have a prayer room and we're able to have Jama. There's five of us. Um, so okay. alhamdulillah, it's just, it just, for me, for myself, it's like the, um, it's the, it's like the together of like all these people aren't able to fulfill their, um, their front Jama, you know, subtle Jama, but we're able to get together and do it. So it gives for me, it's like strength, like, you know, Donald is giving us this ability to, to fulfill our, uh, fulfill our, um, uh, afford, like you must, you, you know, all these people can't even do that, you know? So, mm. uh, it's, it's those little, little things that you take. Uh, yeah. Those uh, jumas must be so much sweeter. Oh yeah. Because it's, it's just because you, you know, you know that there's nobody, nowhere else to go and have Juma. So it's just, yeah. it's, it's awesome. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's and this is another thing from, from just doing Dao work, you do Dao work, you learn a lot of skills and being able to give khutbas and stuff like that, or just being, having the ability, it helps because it's not like a lot of people are available to do things like mm-hmm. that. So, uh, it just, it's, um, it's, um, just the, the backtracking to all Dao work we did, just the, um, things you learn always come back and help you and help yeah. you fulfill, um, fulfill. You, you remember you remember taking that uh fiqh of juma course uh, yeah that, that actually one of the one of the brothers when they are asking so uh, one of the things i learned from the fiqh of juma course is that you know you don't the one that you know you shouldn't be pining to do the khutbas like if some you know so yeah. uh, when they were having trouble finding khatib that one thing and then the brother asked me can you do khutbas like yeah, i can do some khutbas like i have you khutbas before like yeah i've done a fiqh of juma course and he's like why don't you tell me this brother i was like nah, I don't, you know if you uh, like uh, uh if, if, when you needed me you asked and i said yes you know uh, so alhamdulillah like it was uh i remember that course it, it still comes in handy to this day alhamdulillah you know so you know, Subhanallah, think about that. Like, uh, how long ago did you take that course? Like that must have. I'm gonna say like we're maybe something at ten years, maybe maybe nine years, maybe more than that. Uh, yeah, it may. It's it, yeah, maybe eleven years. I know maybe more. Um, yeah, it, it probably has to be a little bit more than that. Maybe eleven or twelve years. I'm not sure, but think about it, Subhanallah. All that time and. Uh, 
you're still able to get reward and everyone who took part in that is still able to take reward in that. Uh, in And you would never have thought, imagined that by uh, taking that course that one day people would be asking me in a pandemic, can I give a khutbah? Yeah, I'm like, I just, that's not something you would think, you know, yeah. it's like, that's the amazing thing about when you do dollar work, all these things come back to you later that end up being beneficial yeah. to you, the experiences that you had, the situations you were put in. That's the, I think the greatest part about dollar work is just the, it's it's the the work itself, but also the personal growth. Like the, what you learn from doing dollar work is you want to always continue to improve. You always yeah. continue to get better. And that's something that carries that that you carry through the rest of your outside of dollar work as well. You carry it because you have this. Okay, I need to improve. I need to get better. I need to. The other yeah. thing, uh, the, the other amazing thing you learn from dollar work. I remember you mentioned this during a lot of courses that it puts you out of your comfort zone. You end up doing things that you're not used to doing or not that you're not, you know, you've never done. So you're uncomfortable doing them. And there's a lot of that in, in, in even just in medicine. Uh, mm. It's it's it's, it's uh, uh, when you are learning a procedure or you're learning. So it's uncomfortable to put it out there or when you've never done something before, it's uncomfortable or even being in a pandemic it's, uh, there. But you get used to being in an uncomfortable situation because you know the overall benefit of it. You know mm. that it'll lead to something positive. So you get more comfortable being uncomfortable comfortable if that makes yes. sense you know yeah yeah um so uh that's one thing you learn doing a lot of that work that you know it's, it's, it becomes natural to you you know to, to yeah. be able to deal with that you know yeah uh, subhanallah that's that that in and of itself is, is such a beautiful byproduct of being involved in dawah because you're always being tested with what as you said you're comfortable with mm -hmm. you're always being tested uh you're 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 always being put into situations where you're where you can grow and if you look at the seerah of rasul tell me a time when the messenger of allah was uh comfortable chilling mm -hmm. from the day he was born he was uh you know he he, uh, he was an orphan uh, he was struggling there was financial struggles uh he lived through uh you know uh war conditions in his uh, teenager years every phase of his life like he went through some type of uh, adversity and he, at times where he could have just laid back, he's married, uh, uh, his wife owns a successful business, he still uh, challenges uh, the status quo, he still challenges uh, the, what he sees as injustices in society, he still is able to challenge the system with the message of Allah SWT. And, and that's our example, that's an example, that's a lifelong struggle of, as you said, being comfortable with discomfort mm -hmm. you know and and the and the problem is is that a lot of times people run away from being uncomfortable people mm -hmm. run away from that and they don't realize that that's the opposite direction that you should be running you know you should be running towards that because that's where you grow that's where you get true satisfaction that's where you actually get a sense of uh, uh of strength you know what i mean like of a person who uh goes through something strenuous when they see uh, other stressful things, like for example, now if you go through the, you go through this pandemic, and may Allah Subhanahu wa Taala protect you and your family, preserve you, so you come out of it uh, with life and limb and increased iman, and so you come out of this. Now just imagine you're going to deal with uh, just a regular day, uh, you know, in in the ER or just a regular day, like. And some and 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 a, and a one code blue happens or two code blue. It's like man, I lived in a situation where I was dealing with 
like code blue all day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Think about your your mind because if, you know, especially when you're in that learning phase, you know, people sometimes run away from hard cases or hard situation because they're like freak out, panic. Okay, what am I gonna do? I don't want to look bad, or how do I deal with this situation? You know, like I want to ease into it. But now that you're going through this, this whole process, man, like imagine now uh, the the doctors that will come out of this, uh, how they'll be able to deal with just a regular, uh, what would normally be a hectic day. No, no, that's very true. I think just yeah, for myself and for the other, everyone else is kind of going through this. Um, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's a good learning experience. I think it'll, I think. There's a lot to learn uh, from with the healthcare system here, and I think everywhere, with this disease itself, uh, and uh, about our protocols with pandemics. I mean, they, they're saying that with this increased globalization and increased travel, it's it's not surprising that this happened, and it's yeah. it's not unlikely that it could happen again in the future. So I, I think just just uh, just doing that. I mean, and like you said, there's people that. Uh, chose not to volunteer, not to work, or because it would make them uncomfortable, and they would learn nothing from the situation. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think it just the overall, like uh, being the overall, what's going to happen when, when inshallah, this is over. Is we're going to have uh, people will come out of this stronger. Um, mm. uh, so, yeah. yeah. All right, brother. Uh, I really appreciate. I know you had a long shift. I can see on your face, uh, you're. It's been wearing physically. It obviously uh, is uh, is quite daunting. So I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I hope all our viewers can really benefit from uh, you know your experience and some of the advices, and the whole idea of uh, you know connecting with as many people during this pandemic is so that we don't just let this time pass. You know, they're 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 spreading around this phrase. This too shall pass, but I'm hoping uh, we're awake while it passes uh, and that we become stronger on the other side. So uh, I really think that, um, you know, these types of reflections and interactions will hopefully help us uh, get the most out of this situation. We want to maximize the benefit out of the situation. We all appreciate the work that you're doing uh, in this epicenter that you found yourself in. And uh, we hope that you can keep the Dawah strong uh, as well, because, uh, you know, I know for a fact that you have a strong legacy uh, with the Dawah. And this is part of the Dawah, you know, calling to the worship of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, to ultimately benefit humanity in all uh, shapes and sizes. So, uh, Dr. Ahmad, for your uh, contribution in the time you've spent with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And to the rest of our viewers, Jazakumah uh, for tuning in. Uh, Life Haq podcast, we're going strong. We want to try to bring you the Haq. We want to try to live by the Haq. And uh, we will see you Thursday, uh, 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, to bring you uh, some more Life Haq. Uh, we ask Allah SWT to keep us steadfast uh, on the truth and to protect us and our families. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.